for, omitted to him some years after Raphael's death. These dates give us a very fair idea of the time at which this important revolution in taste was taking place in Italy. At the end of the 15th and the commencement of the following century, and carved woodwork followed the new direction. Leo X was Pope in 1513, the period of peace which then ensued after war, which for so many decades had disturbed Italy, as France or Germany had in turn striven to acquire her fertile soil, gave the princes and nobles leisure to rebuild and adorn their palaces, and the excavations which were then made brought to light many of the works of art which had remained buried since the time when Rome was mistress of the world. Leo was a member of that remarkable and powerful family the Medicis, the very mention of whom is to suggest the Renaissance, and under his patronage, and with the company operation of the reigning dukes and princes of the different Italian states, artists were given encouragement and scope for the employment of their talents, Michelangelo, Titian, Raffaele Sanzio, Andrea del Sardo, Correggio, and many other great artists were raising up monuments of everlasting fame, Palladio was rebuilding the palaces of Italy, which were then the wonder of the world, Benvenuto Cellini and Lorenzo Ghiberti were designing those marvelous chef d'oeuvres in gold, silver, and bronze which are now so rare, and a host of illustrious artists were producing work which has made the 16th century famous for all time. The circumstances of the Italian noble caused him to be very amenable to art influence, living chiefly out of doors. His climate rendered him less dependent on the comforts of small rooms, to which more northern people were attached, and his ideas would naturally aspire to pomp and elegance, rather than to home life and utility. Instead of the warm chimney corner and the comfortable seat, he preferred furniture of a more palatial character for the adornment of the lofty and spacious saloons of his palace, and therefore we find the buffet elaborately carved, with a free treatment of the classic antique which marks the time. It was frequently garnished with the beautiful majolica of Urbino, of Pesaro, and of Bubba, the sarcophagus, or castle, of oak, or more commonly of chestnut or walnut, sometimes painted and gilded, sometimes carved with scrolls and figures, the cabinet designed with architectural outline, and fitted up inside with steps and pillars like a temple, chairs which are wonderful to look upon as guardians of a stately doorway, but an inviting as seats, tables inlaid gilded, and carved, with slabs of marble or of Florentine mosaic work, but which from their height are as a rule impossible to use for any domestic purpose, mirrors with richly carved and gilded frames are so many evidences of a style which is palatial rather than domestic, in design as in proportion, the walls of these handsome saloons or galleries were hung with rich velvet of Genoese manufacture, with stamped and gilt leather, and a composition ornament was also applied to woodwork and then gilded and painted, this kind of decoration was termed, gesso work. Illustration, marriage coffery in carved walnut. Collection of Comte de Briggs. Period, Renaissance XVI. Century Venetian. A rich effect was produced on the carved console tables, chairs, stools and frames intended for gilding, by the method employed by the Venetian and Florentine craftsmen, the gold leaf being laid on a red preparation, and then the chief portions highly burnished. There are in the South Kensington Museum several specimens of such work, and now that time and wear have caused this red groundwork to show through the faded gold. The harmony of color is very satisfactory. Other examples of 15th century Italian carving, such as the old castle fronts, are picked out with gold, the remainder of the work displaying the rich warm color of the walnut or chestnut wood, 
which were almost invariably employed, of the smaller articles of furniture. The bellows and wall brackets of this period deserve mention, the carving of these is very carefully finished, and is frequently very elaborate. The illustration on page 51 is that of a pair of bellows in the South Kensington collection. The enrichment of woodwork by means of inlaying deserves mention. In the chapter on ancient furniture we have seen that ivory was used as an inlaid ornament as early as six centuries before Christ, but its revival and development in Europe probably commenced in Venice about the end of the 13th century. In copies of geometrical designs, let into ebony and brown walnut, and into a wood something like rosewood, parts of boxes and chests of these materials are still in existence. Mr. Maskell tells us in his handbook on ivories, that probably owing to the difficulty of procuring ivory in Italy, bone of fine quality was frequently used in its place. All this class of work was known as tarsia, intarsia, or cerdocina, a word supposed to be derived from the name of the well-known religious community the Carthusians on account of the dexterity of those monks at this work. It is true that towards the end of the 14th century, Makers of ornamental furniture began to copy marble mosaic work, by making similar patterns of different woods, and subsequently this branch of industrial art developed from such modest beginnings as the simple pattern of a star, or bandings in different kinds of wood in the panel of a door, to elaborate picture making, in which landscapes, views of churches, houses and picturesque ruins were copied, figures and animals being also introduced. This work was naturally facilitated and encouraged by increasing commerce between different nations, which rendered available a greater variety of woods. In some of the early Italian intarsia, the decoration was cut into the surface of the panel piece by piece. As artists became more skillful, veneers were applied and the effect heightened by burning with hot sand the parts requiring shading, and the lines caused by the thickness of the sockets were filled in with black wood or stained glue to give definition to the design. The mounting of articles of furniture with metal enrichments doubtless originated in the iron corner pieces and hinge plates, which were used to strengthen the old chests, of which mention has been already made, and as artificers began to render their productions decorative as well as useful, what more natural progress than that the iron corners, bandings, or fastenings, should be of ornamental forged or engraved iron, in the 16th century. Metal workers reached a point of excellence which has never been surpassed, and those marvels of mountings in steel, iron and brass were produced in Italy and Germany, which are far more important as works of art, than the plain and unpretending productions of the coffer maker, which are their raison d'etre. The woodcut on page 53 represents a very good example of a coffer fort in the South Kensington collection. The decoration is bitten in with acids so as to present the appearance of its being damascened and the complicated lock, shown on the inside of the lid, is characteristic of these safeguards for valuable documents at a time when the modern burglar-proof safe had not been thought of. The illustration on the following page is from an example in the same museum, showing a different decoration, the oval plagues of figures and coats of worms being of carved ivory let into the surface of the coffer. This is an early specimen, and belongs as much to the last chapter as to the present. Pietradura as an ornament was first introduced in Italy during the 16th century, and became a fashion. This was an inlay of highly polished rare marbles, agates, hard pebbles, lapis lazuli, and other stones. Ivory was also carved and applied as a bas-relief, as well as inlaid in arabesques of the most elaborate designs, tortoise shell, brass, mother of pearl, 
and other enrichments were introduced in the decoration of cabinets and of caskets, silver plagues embossed and engraved were pressed into the service as the native princes of Florence, Urbino, Ferrara, and other independent cities vied with Rome, Venice, and Naples in sumptuousness of ornament, and lavishness of expense, until the inevitable period of decline supervened in which exaggeration of ornament and prodigality of decoration gave the eye no repose, Edmund Bonneth. Contrasting the latter period of Italian Renaissance with that of 16th century French woodwork, has pithily remarked, Shaykutz, Lord Dubois consistently dissimilar, Chez nous fair valoir, in Ruskin's Stones of Venice. The author alludes to this over-ornamentation of the latter Renaissance in severe terms, after describing the progress of art in Venice from Byzantine to Gothic, and from Gothic to Renaissance he subdivides the latter period into three classes, one, Renaissance grafted on Byzantine, 2. Renaissance grafted on Gothic, 3. Renaissance grafted on Renaissance, and this last the veteran art critic calls, double darkness, one of his characteristic terms of condemnation which many of us cannot follow, but the spirit of which we can appreciate. Speaking generally of the character of ornament, we find that whereas in the furniture of the Middle Ages, the subjects for carving were taken from the lives of the saints or from metrical romance, the Renaissance carvers illustrated scenes from classical mythology, and allegories, such as representations of elements, seasons, months, the cardinal virtues, or the battle scenes and triumphal processions of earlier times. Illustration, carved walnutwood Italian chairs, 16th century, from photos of the originals in the South Kensington Museum. The outlines and general designs of the earlier Renaissance cabinets were apparently suggested by the old Roman triumphal arches and sarcophagi, afterwards these were modified and became varied, elegant and graceful, but laterally as the period of decline was marked, the outlines as shown in the two chairs on the preceding page became confused and dissipated by over-decoration. The illustrations given of specimens of furniture of Italian Renaissance render lengthy descriptions unnecessary. So far as it has been possible to do so, a selection has been made to represent the different classes of work, and as there are in the South Kensington Museum numerous examples of castle fronts, panels, chairs, and cabinets which can be examined, it is easy to form an idea of the decorative woodwork made in Italy during the period we have been considering. Illustration, Venetian state chair, carved and gilt frame, upholstered with embroidered velvet, date about 1670. In the possession of H. and the Queen at Windsor Castle, the Renaissance in France. From Italy the great revival of industrial art traveled to France. Charles VII, who for two years had held Naples 1494-96, brought amongst other artists from Italy, Bernardino di Brescia and Domenico di Cortona, and art, which at this time was in a feeble, languishing state in France, began to revive. Francis I employed an Italian architect to build the Chateau of Fontainebleau, which had hitherto been but an old-fashioned hunting box in the middle of the forest, and Leonardo di Vinci and Andrea del Sardo came from Florence to decorate the interior. Guilio Romano, who had assisted Raffaele to paint the lobby of the Vatican, exercised an influence in France, which was transmitted by his pupils for generations. The marriage of Henry I.I. With Catherine de' Medici increased the influence of Italian art, and later that of Marie de' Medici with Henri Cotter continued that influence. Diane de Poitiers, mistress of Henri I.I., was the patroness of artists, 
and Fonnenblow has been well said to, reflect the glories of day and splendor loving kings from Francois Premier to Henri Cotter. Besides Fonnenblow, Francis I built the Chateau of Chambord, that of Chanancy on the lawyer, the Chateau de Madrid, and others, and commenced the Louvre, following their king's example. The more wealthy of his subjects rebuilt or altered their chateaux and hotels, decorated them in the Italian style, and furnished them with the cabinets, chairs, coffers, armoires, tables, and various other articles, designed after the Italian models. The character of the woodwork naturally accompanied the design of the building. Fireplaces, which until the end of the 15th century had been of stone, were now made of oak. Richly carved and ornamented with the armorial bearings of the seigneur, the prédieu chair, which Violet Ledu tells us came into use in the 15th century, was now made larger and more ornate, in some cases becoming what might almost be termed a small oratory, the back being carved in the form of an altar, and the utmost care lavished on the work. It must be remembered that in France, until the end of the 15th century, there were no benches or seats in the churches, and, therefore, Prayers were said by the aristocracy in the private chapel of the chateau, and by the middle classes in the chief room of the house. Illustration, chimney piece. In the gallery of Henri I.I., Chateau of Fontainebleau, period, French Renaissance, early XVI, century, the large high-backed chair of the 16th century, chair haute dossier, the armchair, chair bras, chair tournant, for domestic use, are all of this time and some illustrations will show the highly finished carved work of Renaissance style which prevailed. Besides the chair, which was reserved for the seigneur, there were smaller and more convenient stools, the X-form supports of which were also carved. Cabinets were made with an upper and lower part, sometimes the latter was in the form of a stand with caryatids figures like the famous cabinet in the Chateau Fontainebleau, a vignette of which forms the initial letter of this chapter or were enclosed by doors generally decorated with carving, the upper, part having richly carved panels, which when open disclosed drawers with fronts minutely carved, M. Edmund Bonneff, in his work on the 16th century furniture of France, gives no less than 120 illustrations of, tables, coffers, armoires, dressoirs, sieges, and banks, manufactured at Orleans, Anjou, Maine, Turenne, Liberi, Lorraine, Burgundy, Lyon, Provence, Auvergne, Languedoc, and other towns and districts, besides the capital, which excelled in the reputation of her menuisiers, and in the old documents certain articles of furniture are particularized as Theta Paris. He also mentions that Francis I preferred to employ native workmen, and that the Italians were retained only to furnish the designs and lead the new style and in giving the names of the most noted French cabinet makers and carvers of this time, he adds that Jacques Lardin and Michel Borden received no less than 15.700 livres for a number of Buffets de Sals, Tables Garnies de Trito, Chandeliers de Bois, and other articles. Illustration, facsimiles of engravings on wood, by J. Amon, in the 16th century, showing interiors of workshops of the period, the bedstead, of which there is an illustration is a good representation of French Renaissance. It formed part of the contents of the Chateau of Pau, and belonged to Jean d'Albret, mother of Henri Cotter, who was born at Pau in 1553. The bedstead is of oak, and by time has acquired a rich warm tint, the details of the carving remaining sharp and clear, on the lower cornice molding, 
the date 1562 is carved. This, like other furniture and contents of palaces in France, forms part of the state or national collection, of which there are excellent illustrations and descriptions in M. Williamson's Mobilier National, a valuable contribution to the literature of this subject which should be consulted. Illustration, carved oak bedstead of Jean Dalbret, from the Chateau of Poe. Collection, Mobilier National, period, French Renaissance date 1562. Another example of four-post bedsteads of French 16th century work is that of the one in the Cluny Museum, which is probably some years later than the one at Poe, and in the carved members of the two lower posts, more resembles our English Elizabethan work. Towards the latter part of Henri IV, the style of decorative art in France became debased and inconsistent. Construction and ornamentation were guided by no principle, but followed the caprice of the individual. Meaningless pilasters, entablatures, and contorted cornices replaced the simpler outline and subordinate enrichment of the time of Henri II, and until the great revival of taste under the Grand Monarch, there was in France a period of richly ornamented but ill-designed decorative furniture. An example of this can be seen at South Kensington in the plaster cast of a large chimney piece from the Chateau of the Seigneur de Villeroy, near Meniki, by Germain Pilon, who died in 1590. In this the failings mentioned above will be readily recognized, and also in another example, namely, that of a carved oak door from the Church of St. Maclou, Rouen, by Jean Goujon, in which the work is very fine, but somewhat overdone with enrichment. This cast is in the same collection. During the Louis Dries period chairs became more comfortable than those of an earlier time. The word, chaise, as a diminutive of, chair, found its way into the French dictionary to denote the last throne-like seat which was in more ordinary use. And, instead of being at this period entirely carved, it was upholstered in velvet, tapestry or needlework, the frame was covered, and only the legs and arms visible and slightly carved. In the illustration here given, the king and his courtiers are seated on chairs such as have been described. Marquetry was more common, large armoires. Clients of drawers and needle writing tables were covered with an inlay of vases of flowers and birds, of a brownish wood, with enrichments of bone and ivory, inserted in a black ground of stained wood, very much like the Dutch inlaid furniture of some years later but with less color in the various veneers than is found in the Dutch work. Mirrors became larger, the decoration of rooms had ornamental friezes with lower portions of the walls paneled, and the bedrooms of ladies of position began to be more luxuriously furnished. It is somewhat singular that while Normandy very quickly adopted the new designs in her buildings and her furniture, and Rouen carvers and joiners became famous for their work, the neighboring province, Brittany, was conservative of her earlier designs. The sturdy Breton has through all changes of style preserved much of the rustic quaintness of his furniture, and when some three or four years ago the writer was stranded in a sailing trip up the Rani, owing to the shallow state of the river, and had an opportunity of visiting some of the farmhouses in the country district a few miles from Dinan. There were still to be seen many examples of this quaint rustic furniture. Curious beds, consisting of shelves for parents and children, form a cupboard in the wall and are shut in during the day by a pair of lattice doors of Moorish design, with the wheel pattern and spindle perforations, these, with the armoire of similar design, and the hooky or chest with relief carving, of a design part Moorish. Part Pizanin, used as a step to mount to the bed and also as a table, are still the garniture of a good farmhouse in Brittany. 
The earliest date of this quaint furniture is about the middle of the 15th century, and has been handed down from father to son by the more well-to-do farmers. The manufacture of armoires, cupboards, tables and doors, is still carried on near St. Mallow, where also some of the old specimens may be found. The Renaissance in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, the reigning princes of the great house of Burgundy had prepared the soil for the Renaissance, and, by the marriage of Mary of Burgundy with the Archduke Maximilian, the countries which then were called Flanders and Holland, passed under the Austrian rule. This influence was continued by the taste and liberality of Margaret of Austria, who, being appointed governor of the Low Countries in 1507, seems to have introduced Italian artists and to have encouraged native craftsmen. We are told that Cornet Floris introduced Italian ornamentation and grotesque borders, that Pierre Collet, architect and painter, adopted and popularized the designs of Vitruvius and Surreal, wood carvers multiplied and embellished churches and palaces, the houses of the Burgomasters, the town halls, and the residences of wealthy citizens. Oak, at first almost the only wood used, became monotonous, and as a relief, ebony and other rare woods, introduced by the then commencing commerce with the Indies, were made available for the embellishments of furniture and woodwork of this time. One of the most famous examples of rich wood carving is the well-known hall and chimney piece at Bruges with its group of cupidons and armorial bearings, amongst an abundance of floral detail. This over-ornate chef d'oeuvre was designed by Lancelot Blondel and Guillaume de Borigrant, and its carving was the combined work of three craftsmen celebrated in their day, Herman Glossenkamp, Andrew Rash and Roger D. Smet. There is in the South Kensington Museum a full-sized plaster cast of this gigantic chimney piece, the lower part being colored black to indicate the marble of which it was composed, with panels of alabaster carved in relief, while the whole of the upper portion and the richly carved ceiling of the room is of oak. The model, including the surrounding woodwork, measures 36 feet across, and should not be missed by anyone who is interested in the subject of furniture for it is noteworthy historically as well as artistically, being a monument in its way, in celebration of the victory gained by Charles V over Francis I of France, in 1529, at Pavia, the victorious sovereign being at this time not only Emperor of Germany, but also enjoying amongst other titles those of Duke of Burgundy, Count of Flanders, King of Spain and the Indies, etc. etc., the large statues of the Emperor, of Ferdinand and Isabella, with some 37 heraldic shields of the different royal families with which the conqueror claimed connection, are prominent features in the intricate design. There is in the same part of the museum a cast of the oak door of the council chamber of the Hotel de Ville at Audenard, of a much less elaborate character. Plain mullions divide 16 panels carved in the Orthodox Renaissance style, with cupids bearing tablets, from which are depending floral scrolls, and at the sides the supports are columns with the lower parts carved and standing on square pedestals. The date of this work is 1534, somewhat later than the Bruges carving, and is a representative specimen of the Flemish work of this period. The clever Flemish artist so thoroughly copied the models of his different masters that it has become exceedingly difficult to speak positively as to the identity of much of the woodwork, and to distinguish it from German, English, or Italian. Although as regards the latter we have seen that walnut wood was employed very generally, whereas in Flanders, oak was nearly always used for figure work. After the period of the purer forms of the first renaissance, 
The best time for carved woodwork and decorative furniture in the Netherlands was probably the 17th century, when the Flemish designers and craftsmen had ceased to copy the Italian patterns, and had established the style we recognize as Flemish Renaissance. Lucas Faderday, architect and sculptor 1617-1694 whose boxwood group of the death of John the Baptist is in the South Kensington Museum both the Verbruggens, and Albert Brell who carved the choir work of St. Giorgio Maggiore in Venice, are amongst the most celebrated Flemish wood carvers of this time. Briadman de Vries and Crispin de Passe, although they worked in France, belong to Flanders and to the century. Some of the most famous painters Francis Halls, Jordines, Rembrandt, Metsu, Van Meeres all belong to this time, and in some of the fine interiors represented by these old masters, in which embroidered curtains and rich coverings relieve the somber colors of the dark carved oak furniture. There is a richness of effect which the artist could scarcely have imagined, but which he must have observed in the houses of the rich burghers of prosperous Flanders. In the chapter on Jacobean furniture, we shall see the influence and assistance which England derived from Flemish woodworkers, and the similarity of the treatment in both countries will be noticed in some of the South Kensington Museum specimens of English marquetry made at the end of the 17th century. The figure work in Holland has always been of a high order, and though as the 17th century advanced, this perhaps became less refined, the proportions have always been well preserved, and the attitudes are free and unconstrained. A very characteristic article of 17th century Dutch furniture is the large and massive wardrobe, with the doors handsomely carved, not infrequently having three columns, one in the center and one at each side and these generally form part of the doors, which are also enriched with square panels, carved in the center and finished with moldings. There are specimens in the South Kensington Museum, of these and also of earlier Flemish work when the Renaissance was purer in style and, as has been observed, of less national character. The marquetry of this period is extremely rich, the designs are less severe, but the coloring of the woods is varied and the effect heightened by the addition of small pieces of mother-of-pearl and ivory. Later, this marquetry became florid, badly finished, and the coloring of the veneers crude and gaudy. Old pieces of plain mahogany furniture were decorated with a thin layer of highly colored veneering, a meretricious ornamentation altogether lacking refinement. Their island however, a peculiarity and character about some of the furniture of North Holland, in the towns of Altmar, Horn, and others in this district which is worth noticing. The treatment has always been more primitive and quaint than in the Flemish cities to which allusion has been made and it was here that the old farmhouses of the North Hollander were furnished with the rush-bottomed chairs, painted green, the three-legged tables, and dower chests painted in flowers and figures of a rude description, with the coloring chiefly green and bright red, is extremely effective. The Renaissance in Spain we have seen that Spain as well as Germany and the Low Countries were under the rule of the Emperor Charles V and therefore it is unnecessary to look further for the sources of influence which brought the wave of Renaissance to the Spanish carvers and cabinet makers. Illustration, sedan chair of Charles V probably made in the Netherlands, arranged with movable back and uprights to form a canopy when desired, in the Royal Armory, Madrid, after Van Eyck was sent for to paint the portrait of King John's daughter. The Low Countries continued to export to the peninsula painters, sculptors, tapestry weavers, and books on art. French artists also found employment in Spain, and the older Gothic became superseded as in other countries. Berugut, a Spaniard, 
who had studied in the atelier of Michelangelo, returned to his own country with the new influence strong upon him, and the vast wealth and resources of Spain at this period of her history enabled her nobles to indulge their taste in cabinets richly ornamented with repoussé plagues of silver, and later of tortoise shell, of ebony, and of scarce woods from her Indian possessions, though in a more general way chestnut was still a favorite medium. Contemporary with decorative woodwork of Moorish design there was also a great deal of carving, and of furniture made, after designs brought from Italy and the north of Europe, and Mr. J. H. Pollan, quoting a trustworthy Spanish writer, Señor J. F. Ryrio, says, the brilliant epoch of sculpture in wood belongs to the 16th century, and was due to the great impulse it received from the works of Berugut and Felipe de Borgona. He was the chief promoter of the Italian style and the choir of the Cathedral of Toledo, where he worked so much, is the finest specimen of the kind in Spain. Toledo, Seville, and Valladolid were at the time great productive and artistic centers. The same writer, after discussing the characteristic Spanish cabinets, decorated outside with fine ironwork and inside with columns of bone painted and gilt, which were called Varganos, says, the other cabinets or escritoires belonging to that period 16th century were to a large extent imported from Germany and Italy, while others were made in Spain in imitation of these, and as the copies were very similar it is difficult to classify them. Illustration, chair of walnut or chestnut wood, covered in leather with embossed pattern. Spanish, collection of Baron de Valier, period, early XVII, century, illustration, wooden coffer with wrought iron mounts and falling flap, on carved stand, Spanish, collection of M. Brisson, period, XVII, century, besides these inlaid cabinets, others must have been made in the 16th century inlaid with silver, an edict was issued in 1594, prohibiting, with the utmost rigor, the making and selling of this kind of merchandise, in order not to increase the scarcity of silver, the edict says that, no cabinets, desks, coffers, braziers, shoes, tables, or other articles decorated with stamped, raised, carved, or plain silver should be manufactured. The beautiful silver table in Her Majesty's collection at Windsor Castle, illustrated on page 68, is probably one of Spanish make of late 16th or early 17th century. Although not strictly within the period treated of in this chapter, it is convenient to observe that much later, in the 17th and 18th centuries, one finds the Spanish cabinet maker ornamenting his productions with an inlay of ivory let into tortoise shell, representing episodes in the history of Don Quixote, and the national pastime of bullfighting. These cabinets generally have simple rectangular outlines with numerous drawers, the fronts of which are decorated in the manner described, and where the stands are original they are formed of turned legs of ebony or stained wood. In many Spanish cabinets the influence of Saracenic art is very dominant, these have generally a plain exterior. The front is hinged as a fall-down flap, and discloses a decorative effect which reminds one of some of the Alhambra word quaint arches inlaid with ivory, of a somewhat bizarre coloring of blue and vermilion altogether a rather barbarous but rich and effective.